Hey, everybody, good morning. Welcome to church today. Happy Labor Day weekend. Thank you for uh, taking time this morning to join with the church and singing and opening God's word together. It's a, a real honor to be with you here today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, in this series, What is Faith? As you saw in the video, we're walking through a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And here's our working definition of faith. You can see it on the screen. It says, faith is a decision to respond to what God has said. Let me say that again. Faith is a decision to respond to what God has said. And so far in this series, we've seen that faith draws near to God. Faith keeps drawing near to God. Faith perseveres. Faith does not shrink back from persecution. And last week, uh, Pastor Tim Porter taught, faith trusts what cannot be seen. Uh, faith is not irrational, it's not anti-rational, but faith does believe things that we cannot see because God is spirit and he's doing things that we cannot see. It doesn't mean that we can't trust them and that they aren't real. And that, that matters today because today we're talking about uh, faith endures suffering. This is important because one thing I can guarantee you Whoever you are this morning, however you're approaching the subject of faith, one thing I can guarantee is that you are going to suffer. Uh, many of you are suffering today. One thing that unites agnostics, atheists, nuns, not nuns, well, nuns too, but you know what N-O-N-E-S is. <laughs> one thing that unites everybody together is that everyone is going to suffer. And suffering, I, so I, I think my experience has been suffering for all of us, is it in the top two challenges to Christian faith. That includes Christians and those who are just watching Christians. Speaking for myself, I would tell you that the, what, what a philosopher would call the problem of evil and suffering is in my top two challenges to Christian faith. Uh, the problem of evil and suffering would be stated by a philosopher something like this. If there is a loving God that is sovereign, wise, and good, then why do we suffer? Why is there evil? Or uh, why do Christians suffer? Right? Like, why isn't that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're exempt from a lot of the issues that the rest of the world has to deal with? If God is loving and good, why do bad things happen to good people and so on? Before we jump into the scripture, I would point out really quickly that the problem of evil and suffering was not created by philosophers. It actually was created by the Bible itself. It's a uniquely Christian and Jewish problem. Okay, so paganism, for example, out of which the Bible sprang, paganism does not have this problem because paganism does not assign to any single god absolute authority and it doesn't necessarily assign to any of the gods a loving intention in the first place the problem of evil and suffering is not a problem for an atheist or a naturalist because nature does not care about your suffering nature doesn't have intent for anything and you need to get over it and move on with life uh, most Eastern religions, or, or uh, you know, in the West now, everybody talks about the universe. Most Eastern religions or the new Western kind of spirituality 
They don't really, I mean, they care tremendously about suffering, but the goal there is to just help you cope, not necessarily to provide a meaning for them because they don't believe in a personal God. And suffering in some uh, Eastern religions is seen as part of this illusion that we're trapped in. In the Bible, the problem is that from beginning to end, we're presented with this consistent picture that the creator God who rules over all things is perfectly wise and absolutely good and always loving. And nothing happens in heaven or on earth apart from the will and decree of Almighty God. This is not to deny that you have a will and that your decisions matter. Okay, we're not fatalists. This is not to deny that there are personal spiritual forces of evil that do exist and also have a will. But what scripture teaches is that God is ultimately going to take up all of that. God is going to take up everything that we do and everything that's been done to us and not just force it to do us good, but he's so awesome. He's so good that in the end, all we've done and everything that's happened to us will be shown to only have magnified and enlarged and advanced God's purpose. If your immediate thought is, that's a wonderful fairy story. That's a very wonderful story. In the end, all the sad things come untrue. Not only do they come untrue, but we'll see it was actually a part of something bigger. Must be nice to be a brainless Christian. That would be a fairy story, except for this. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul says to the church, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you are an idiot. <laughs> That's not, I'm, it's in the Greek, you know. <laughs> if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, you are to be pitied. You're a pathetic creature. Because if he's not been raised from the dead, it doesn't mean anything. And you do need to get over it. But in the cross of Jesus, we see the most meaningless suffering. The most horrible event in, in history, conceived by the will of men and angels. And in the end, it's shown to be God's ultimate display of power, love, victory, and wisdom. It's the whole, it's the whole story of the universe in one event. The cross of Jesus the wisdom, the power, and the glory of God. And then the resurrection is God's guarantee. God says the resurrection of Jesus is just, the, this is the first taste of something that is coming for the whole world. A renewal of all things where it will all mean something in the end. Everyone here is gonna suffer. And many are suffering even today. The question is, Will it mean anything in the end? And the Christian message gives us tremendous resources to believe that it will. So that's what we're talking about today. With that in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. That'll be on page 1008, if you want to follow along in a Bible under the chairs in front of you. Page 1008, Hebrews chapter 12, and then I have a bonus reading this morning. Because I like you so much. Here we go. 
Therefore, the author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves." and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I just want to share this also from the, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. This will be on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're in Hebrews again, we're going to spend the rest of our time in Hebrews. Verses 1 and 2, if you remember, were a part of our reading on Easter this year. Pastor Tim Porter directed our attention to this metaphor that Hebrews gives us of the race. The Christian life, Hebrews says, is like a long race, a marathon. If you've ever been a part of training for a sport or long-distance running, which is not a sport, it's a form of insanity, then (laughs) 
you know what it's like. You know what it's like to barely be able to lift your feet, right? And to plod along one foot in front of another. And yet somehow you did it. Here you are. And looking more buff, more healthy, more vibrant as a result. It did you good. And that's the metaphor that Hebrews applies to the Christian life. Thankfully, he points out in verse 1, we're not the first person to run. He talks about, in verse 1, this cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses, he calls it. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have run this race ahead of us, who also suffered and yet held fast to the Lord Jesus. We'll come back to those verses at the end. In verse 4, though, he says, in verse 4, that worse may be coming. That's what he wants them to know. Here it is. In, in your struggle, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You recall, maybe if, you, if you've been around for a few weeks, recall from chapter 10, the kinds of suffering that these folks were facing were of a social and a financial uh, kind. They were being socially ostracized. They were misunderstood. They were being accused of a lot of crazy things in their city. They were being made to feel ashamed of what they believed. Many of us are familiar with that experience. And there were financial repercussions. Work was harder for Christians to find. Their businesses were being boycotted. They weren't being treated equally under the law. And chapter 10 says some of them uh, were even in prison at this point. But the implication of verse 4 is, friends, this is not the worst thing that can happen. Okay, the pe people in chapter 11, this great cloud of witnesses, many of them, faced much harder things than this. People throughout the world today are facing much harder things than that. And so we're to learn to walk by faith now, he says. Learn to walk by faith and learn, the, learn to recognize the hand of God in the things you're suffering now. Uh, learn what we mean when we talk about trusting the word of God now. Uh, learn what we mean when we talk about waiting on the Lord in prayer now. When things are relatively easy compared to what they could be. Again, a marathon is a perfect metaphor. If you do not train for a metaphor, you die, okay? You don't make it. Uh, uh, an athlete who will not bring herself under the discipline of a coach only has humiliation and defeat in her future. Can't you see the author is saying that God is training you right now? in these things, that these present hardships are the means by which a loving father is preparing you, first of all, for harder things that may come, and definitely for greater things that are coming. That there's this uh, great line in the Old Testament uh, where the, the prophet Jeremiah, who did suffer a lot, is complaining to the Lord, okay, and the Lord says to him, he says, if you have run with the footmen and they wore you out, footmen are kind of the lowest on the military totem pole. If you've run with footmen and they wore you out, how will you run with horses? It's such a great line. Saying, Jeremiah, 
I have made you for something that you cannot even begin to imagine at this point. And if you're quitting on me now, what is going to happen when things really get awesome for you? Okay? Have you forgotten, he says in verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, as sons or as children? And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 about how God disciplines those that he loves. Now, we do not live in a highly stratified society, and I, I mean, we rarely, if ever, talk about people as legitimate or illegitimate children, praise God. But it was common in this context, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, for a man to have a legal wife, and then to have any number of mistresses on the side with whom he was having illegitimate children. This wasn't in the church, but in the Greco-Roman world. And legitimate sons, okay, children that came from a legal marriage were the ones who inherited the family fortune. And for that reason, mom and dad had a vested interest in how they would turn out, okay? Tutors were hired, spankings were administered, boarding schools were built, discipline was enforced, because legitimate sons were being prepared to rule the estate. They were being prepared for this awesome responsibility. Illegitimate children, on the other hand, were free to live in whatever way they saw fit. Because I, I, the philosophy is, hey, have a great time now. Because all that waits you is servitude. You can imagine when they were younger that there was jealousy, probably, between legitimate and illegitimate children because you have one, you know, kids on the one hand who are free to just do whatever they want while the other one's with his Greek tutor. But this one has you know, the undivided and irksome attention of loving parents too and a future waiting for him. So he says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as, as children, as sons. If you are left without discipline, verse 8, then you are illegitimate. That, that first sentence is clunky. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. What he's saying is, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. I'm speaking to everyone in the room now, wherever you're at with, with faith, you're going to suffer. The question is, will it mean anything? Okay, will it be discipline or just pain? Because, because suffering for no reason and discipline can look and feel the same. But one is filled with meaning and purpose. Okay, it is possible, I, well, a lot of you do it. I don't know why you do it. It is possible to run for no reason. I see you around town all the time. No one is chasing you. There's no ball in front of you. You're just running. I don't understand it. So it, it's absolutely possible to run aimlessly. It's another thing entirely to have a coach that's pushing you forward to a purpose for, I'm just picking on you. I love runners too, and I kind of get it, but. But it's an entirely, they look the same, those two people. 
But one's running, one's suffering is filled with purpose. There's a goal toward which they're striving and a promise that they're trying to attain to. The promise of scripture is that nothing comes to me except through the hand of my Father who loves me and is, going, is absolutely committed to doing what is very best for me. And the time to learn that, Hebrews is saying, is now, please. If you're here today and you're not experiencing a lot of suffering, now is the time. Learn to recognize the hand of your Father in what's happening to you. Learn to trust the word of God. Learn to wait on the Lord in prayer. Learn what disappointment with God feels like and that it's not fatal to you. If I could just, if, you know, if I could crawl into the head of every high schooler or take you by the face, okay? If I could take you by the face, high schoolers, I, I would want to say to you this morning, when you say that life is confusing, and difficult, and the, and the responsibilities are too much, and that you don't understand what's going on. We believe you. We believe you. But, but we would want you to believe us when we say to you that you were made to run with horses. You were made for awesome things. And what if now, when you're 16 years old, Rather than becoming bitter and cynical in the midst of what, what honestly, you know, I don't, kids, it's going to get, <laughs> it's going to get worse, okay? <laughs> things are going to get, there, there are things that are harder coming, okay? Learn to run with horses now so that when those things come, you, you know, you're that rock, for your family, for your community, for your church, and so on. For the rest of you, I, I just want to mention briefly, for anyone here that is suffering or wants to prepare to suffer well, again, every spring and fall here at Faith Community Church, we offer a course called Freedom Groups. Freedom Groups are a specialized, Christ-centered small group experience focused on bringing biblical hope and compassion to your real life, taking the gospel that we talk about every week here, and for 16 weeks, applying it to what's really happening in your life. The consistent feedback we get semester after semester is everyone at Faith Community Church needs to take this course because it takes what we're talking about here and you get to work it out in your actual life with some really gifted leaders. So if you have any questions about freedom groups, our pastor of biblical counseling, Pat Stream, will be in our ministry booth right over here. Go and check that out. But what, what is the discipline that are of our Heavenly Father like, and what are some of the things that the discipline of God works out in our lives? He says in verse 9, shall we not be subject to the Father of spirits and live? God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Here are just a few things that suffering does in the life of a, of a Christian. Number one, God's discipline prepares us for greater things. 
Okay, there are so many examples of this in Scripture everywhere that you go. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David. You name a person in Scripture who did anything worthwhile, you will find a significant season of preparation through suffering for the things that God wanted to do to them. God is treating you as sons, verse 7. He's preparing you for something, um, you know, greater. So that can include greater faith, fruit, excuse me, fruitfulness in ministry here in this life. But ultimately, we know that God is preparing his people to reign with Christ in a whole new creation. That's why we read uh, from 2 Corinthians this morning, because one of my favorite phrases in the Bible is there. God is preparing you, preparing you. Okay, there's intention behind what you're experiencing, preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. I was meeting with a sister from church here this week who who is suffering tremendously and was able to say to her in truth and integrity, all of the things that are happening to you now, all of the things that have happened in your past, the promise of scripture, even though you cannot see it now, the promise of God is that he will take it up and is making something incredible. And if you will hold on, he will rest it on you like a weight of glory at some point. So hold on. The second thing that suffering does, suffering has a way of shattering our illusions of self-sufficiency and awesomeness. We're Americans, and we are both self-sufficient and awesome. And suffering has a way of letting you know That's not true. At least it's not entirely true. How might, if you're being prepared by God to do awesome things, how might he keep you from destroying your soul in the process? Answer, he'll probably bring suffering into your life. I think of Paul, the apostle Paul, talking about this thorn in his flesh. He said, you know, his ministry was just, he was having these amazing experiences in ministry, these incredible revelations and so on. And so he says, God sent some kind of abiding pain into his life so that, quote, it would keep him from becoming conceited. Boy, you may, <laughs> you may think you are hot stuff until that first stroke comes along. That first heart attack comes along or that 40, honestly, 40 comes along. And you think, oh boy, I cannot do the things I used to do. God is trained, he's treating you as sons. He's making you fit to do greater things. Third, God's discipline draws us to prayer and dependence on God. No, I mean, few people pray like suffering people. Few people seek the Lord in prayer like those who are hurting. Read the Psalms sometime. In Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus praying all night after a particularly difficult confrontation with religious leaders. The church in Acts, when they suffered, next thing you see, they're praying. John Newton wrote this. He said, it's a pity it should be so, but experience testifies that a long curse of ease and prosperity without pain has an unhappy tendency to make us cold in worship. But trouble rouses our spirits to call on the Lord. Fourth, discipline draws us to the word of God in the same way. Paul said to the church in Rome, quote, the scriptures were written for your instruction 
so that through perseverance and the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Anytime I'm discouraged, especially in my job, I read about Moses. I say, it's not that bad. This could be a lot worse. Fifth, God's discipline exposes our hearts. When things are going well in life, we assume our hearts are doing well. We assume our motivations must be pure and our, we must be faith-filled people. Suffering allows you to see if that's really true or not. David wrote in the Psalms, search my heart and know me. Test me and see if there's any sinful way in me. Suffering allows you to see what God already sees. And finally, God, uh, God's discipline fills us with a longing for our true home. So suffering allows us to see our hearts the way that God already sees them. Suffering also allows us to see the world the way that God already sees it. All of our money and our homes and our toys and our work and our, our very lives, God allows us to see that these are passing, they are weak, they cannot, they cannot bring the purpose and meaning we long for. Thomas Watson uh, wrote this, he said, in prosperity, when we're doing well, the heart is often divided. We cleave partly to the world and partly to God. Then God sets our worldly comforts on fire and we run to him. So here's the exhortation from Hebrews. This is what the author wants you to do. Number one, keep going. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Think, think of the marathon runner. Get them up. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 13 is an allusion to the prophet Isaiah. You should just write in your margin Isaiah 35. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. In that chapter, God promises that he will make a path in the wilderness. And on that path will be healing and holiness and righteousness, and it will lead them home. But you have to stay on the path, God says. If you wander from the path, there's only destruction. So, number one, keep going. Then he, he ends with this warning in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. <clears throat> Once again, please, before we talk about this, keep in mind that this is written to Christians. He is not talking about people who've never heard of Jesus, but to people like us, who've heard the word of God, they've participated in the ministries of the church, they've tasted fellowship with God, and yet he says... Be careful that none of you fall, from the, fall away from the grace of God or fail to obtain the grace of God. And he lays out three paths, okay? 
Complaining, complacency, and the path of Christ. Do you see what I did there? That's some varsity level pastor stuff right there. <laughs> Complaining, complacency, <laughs> and Christ. Uh, here's the path of complaining is in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. The root of bitterness comes from Exodus and Numbers where Israel, when they began suffering in the wilderness, instead of receiving those trials as a gift from a loving father to prepare them for something greater that was coming, they got bitter. They started to grumble and complain about what was happening to them. And in scripture, that, bitter, that, that bitterness against God is pictured like a weed that begins in a corner of the, gar- of the lawn and works its way across the whole lawn. And what happened to them is that they, they failed to obtain the grace of God and one by one they died in the wilderness. The author is saying to us, please don't let that happen. Don't let that happen in your church, in your family. How should we respond when people are suffering? You guys do this so well, by the way. I'm just reminding you, how do, what do we do? We hug each other. We cry with each other. We sit with each other. We say, I'm, I'm so sorry. We're really, really careful with our advice. If we, give any, if we give advice at all, which I generally wouldn't do, we listen, we pray. The one thing that we won't do, Faith Community Church, is to turn our faces against the Lord. The one thing that we won't do is lift up our face against God. Say, what the hell are you doing? This makes no sense to me. I don't understand. I, I, I hate you. I don't trust you. We won't do that. What did Sarah Edwards say when her husband Jonathan Edwards died too soon and unexpectedly? She said, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. I ask permission to share this with you today that this week, Faith Community Church, we had a dear sister, a member here at Faith Community Church go home to be with the Lord. Her name was Marilyn Gunderson. For as long as I've known Marilyn, she suffered with chronic pain and illness. I've been here for 11 years. I don't know that I ever knew her at a time when she wasn't experiencing pain. But her husband said to me this week, even with all this suffering, she never became bitter. He added, she, it only, he says, it only strengthened her resolve to hold fast to Jesus. What else can we do? I mean, where else can we go? And, and now she's with the Lord, a part of that cloud of witnesses that would say to you this morning, oh, if you could hold on, you'd see. The other path the author lays in front of us is the path of Esau. It's the path of complacency. Esau, in verses 16 and 17, this is Jacob's twin brother. 
he was Jacob's older twin brother. So it was supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's what we should be talking about. But now instead it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau was a fool. So if you know the story at all, Jacob, and I just thank God for his story, he had so many issues. He has so many serious flaws, serious character deficiencies. That guy was a total moron. But for all of his issues, Jacob had this going for him. He really did want to be part of the blessing of God. That's the one thing he had going for him. For all of his issues, he showed a genuine appreciation for what was being offered to him by God. Esau was just a fool. He was what we would call a man of the world. He just had no appetite for spiritual things. He's a, he's a cultural Christian. You know, he went to church because mom and dad made him go, and then when he was old enough to make his own decisions, he just was busy with other things. It's not that he didn't like God. He even talks about God from time to time. He uses God's name when it suits him and all that. But one day, you know, he finds himself famished after a day of hunting, and he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's what he thought about what God had offered to him. That's how much he thought about it. It's interesting that it's linked in verse 16 with sexual immorality. Because in, in Esau's story, we're never actually told he was a sexually immoral person. I, we can assume that, but we're never told that. But it's paired with Esau to say, this is, you know, sexual immorality is a, is a tremendous example of this kind of spiritually complacent, I'm going to live for the moment kind of attitude. What are we after when we have sex outside of God's law? We want comfort. We want release. We want companionship. And we want pleasure. And this will do it for us. So why wait on the Lord? It's a microcosm of the whole issue with humanity. God, God holds out to you infinite pleasure at his right hand forevermore. And you're like, man, but there's this bowl of soup. I mean, I can have that now. Esau was a fool. And he's held out here in front of us to say, don't do that. Like, don't be this, this person that just, you know, you, you, you've been brought up to know the word of God, to understand who Jesus is. And you don't care? What do you think is going to happen to you when you die? It says here, Esau, when he saw what he'd lost later on, he's like, oh, 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 you know what? I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I, I'm sorry. I want it. it was too late. The deed was already done. Exactly. Finally, there's the way of, this is verses 1 and 2 and 3, the, the way of Christ. The author says in this marathon of faith, not only do we have this cloud of witnesses, Jesus is the witness. He says, look to Jesus, verse 2. Consider Jesus, verse 3, and you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. And they, he calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Those two words should, should go together, author, Depending on your translation, it's translated a lot of different ways. The author of our faith, the source, the pioneer, the founder. Uh, some versions even say the champion of our faith. It just is saying, Jesus has gone first here, okay? There is nothing, nothing, nothing a Christian will ever be asked to face that Jesus has not faced. 
and done so in faith. Jesus' whole life was one of unbroken and even unquestioning faith in his Father. He's the author, the source, the pioneer, and then it says he's the perfecter. So what it's saying, not only has he shown us the way, but he's actually promised to be with us in the race. We hold fast to Jesus because he is holding fast to us. Uh, he is, he's perfecting our faith. And a part of that is to take you through the valley of the shadow of death, through suffering. He promises to be with us. I had a, I had a track coach in high school. Uh, so I was one of those people that ran circles too for whatever. But he, all practice and all during meets, he would run from the in, one side of the infield to the other. He would find the kid whose legs were about to quit and he would be right at your elbow. Go, go, go. You're almost, you can do it. And you know what you would discover? There was more in the tank. It's amazing. And this is, this is Jesus, the perfecter of your faith. Right at your elbow. Keep going, keep going. I've been there. I've been I've been there, and what's waiting for you is worth it. Keep going. A lot of agreement from the back row today. <laughs> Look to Jesus as you run. Consider Jesus as you run, verse 3. Last question for those, for those who are just wrestling with questions of faith. Maybe this is your first time here. A friend invited you. You would identify as an agnostic or something like that. This is the question you have to answer. If, if suffering is a serious impediment to faith for you, last question is, what is God doing then on a cross? What is he doing there? It means something. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, then everything you're experiencing will mean something. Let's pray for each other before we sing together. I want you to just take a moment right now. Everyone here knows people suffering. Would you take a moment right now to pray for them by name as we prepare to sing? Almighty God, we ask together that you would abundantly bless every individual and every family that's a part of Faith Community Church and everyone whose lives we interact with and touch. Would you protect our kids? Would you strengthen families? Would you do great things? But to whatever degree it is that you've appointed us to suffer, then we, we ask, God, have mercy. And strengthen us to do it with faith. Apply our cancers, our heart attacks, our marriage troubles, our wayward children. Apply the pain in our lives to our good. And let us see you redeeming it now. God, I would... I would rather not wait. Would you redeem those things now?
But until you do, perfect our faith and prepare us for that weight of eternal glory. Increase our faith, God. We ask this through Jesus. Everyone said? Let's stand and sing, and then I have a favor to ask you when we're done.